Hello, and welcome to Evaluand, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. So this week we're chatting with Ann Jeanette or Angie Roska about objectivity, trust and numbers, truth and power and more. So Angie, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Dana. Yeah, I'm really happy that you reached out. Uh, so just a little bit of background for the people listening right now that you emailed me really early when the podcast came out. And it was very surprising because we don't know each other, at least not <laughs> yet, right? We're getting to know each other through this podcast. And I just want to say I really appreciated it and how you approached me with this really intriguing ideas of what to talk about. Um, in particular, we're going to talk about your three medium posts on truth, uh, sorry, trust and numbers. Um, and so we'll talk about that in a second. But before we start, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? For instance, how you came into evaluation or what you currently do in evaluation? Sure. Thanks. Um, and yes, thanks for doing a podcast in our field. Um, I was really excited to hear about it. And um, as I, I said to you a little bit earlier, I'm I've always fantasized that uh, that we at Informing Change, the company that I co-direct, um, could could do a podcast series, and it's always been well beyond our capacity. So, um, anytime I, I see an opportunity, I want to snatch it up. Um, so it was really kind of you to write back. Um, I did I didn't know if you would. Um, I am I've been a director at Informing Change for uh, almost six years now. And the company itself uh, is 22, 23 years old. Um, and I'm, uh, I co-direct the company with um, Michael Arnold and Gail Camacho, my two leadership team fellow members. We are the third generation of leadership at the company. We're pretty small. We've got about 15 people. And we work with nonprofits and philanthropies on strategy development, evaluation, strategic learning, all that good stuff with a pretty big focus on equity, um, participatory action research, and complex systems change. Uh, so those are kind of our sweet spots. And I came to evaluation, I'm pausing because there are long and longer versions, and I'm trying to figure out the shortest version. <laughs> um, I was, um, I, I was the first person in, like, well, first I should say, like, I didn't even graduate high school, but I was the first person in my family to go to college and got super excited about thinking and learning and um, had some wonderful professors who sent me on a path into academia, but I was always a very ambivalent academic. I loved teaching, I loved research, but it was pretty isolating. And when you write in academia, you're lucky if you can get a handful of readers. Um, and if you get more than that, you're in great shape. So it, it just felt lonely um, as, a, as a career, even though I loved uh, working with my students. And then I got a Fulbright to go do some research in Bosnia-Herzegovina um, on human rights and police, a very timely topic these days. And while I was there, I was offered a few different jobs working for UN agencies or other kinds of international NGOs and was really torn and almost took a couple, but hung on in hopes that I could make academia, which was a good fit in a lot of ways, work for me. But I got to do some, to lead some participatory action research in Bosnia on the topic of child trafficking. And it was so exciting um, and by far more challenging than the super high theoretical stuff I'd been doing in graduate school and in my own work that, you know, it had just increased my ambivalence. Um, finally, I decided to leave academia. I, and I directed a, a women's peace NGO uh, that advocated for women, peace and security at the UN. And uh, as the director, I was responsible for bringing in funding. And we had a really hard time demonstrating uh, our effects in the world because we weren't a direct service organization. We did advocacy and we didn't even do advocacy in a way that most U.S. funders were familiar with. We were trying to get the U.N. Security Council to do different things, which is, I've often described as a little bit like throwing jello at a wall and 
watching it slide down um, and you know <laughs> to try to figure out how, how do you go over and measure the effects of that jello on the wall is it's a really big challenge and so that sort of re kicked my research brain back into gear and I started looking into ways to demonstrate uh, impact uh, even though I'm don't I don't always love that word um, demonstrate effectiveness meaningfulness in the world to funders and kind of tucked it away in the back of my mind and then um, when I was ready to move on from that organization I kind of put myself through an independent training program and evaluation and I entered the field right around the time that developmental evaluation was taking off and um, had had I entered earlier I'm not sure I would have gotten as excited about it um, but it really worked for me it, it fit with my my academic training which is as an ethnographer so a much more sort of inductive qualitative approach to knowledge making and very much centered on interaction with other people as evaluation is and that, yeah once I started it I couldn't get enough I did some work for human rights agencies as an independent consultant and and then came to informing change Nice. So, yeah. Once you're in evaluation, you're in. <laughs> yeah, it does seem that way. Um, yeah. It's, it's turned out to be a much better fit than I would have expected. So I'm curious, uh, when, when in your academic career did you like understand like evaluation or hear about evaluation? Is it something that it was always there? And then once you're kind of more professionally in that spot, you went towards it or did you not hear about it towards kind of later when you were working directly with NGOs and stuff like that? That's a really great question. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure I heard about it. I don't know that it registered in my brain as anything. I heard about it. I certainly had heard of applied research, um, but I, you know, I, my all of my graduate training was was in, in very theoretical areas where applied research was was kind of like what you did if you didn't succeed in academia. It was kind of looked down on, which is really a shame because I, like I say, I think it's more challenging in a lot of ways than more theoretical work. But when I was in Bosnia, I was hearing from colleagues who worked for UN agencies about how they were supposed to come up with indicators. They needed to have indicators for human rights. They needed to have indicators for food security, um, conflict prevention, things like that. And because it tends to be how I enter into things, I, I got really interested in the like the epistemological concept of an indicator and what does it mean to indicate something and what were they really trying to get at? And that led me down this kind of wormhole about um, the history of concepts of accountability and how they actually come out of the practice of accounting and learning about that took me on a, a bunch of other intellectual journeys into which I was already predisposed to do because my my graduate school advisor was Donna Haraway who does science and technology studies so I got interested in how it is we know what we think we know and <laughs> um, and what is any of that have to do with sort of the technologies of knowledge, like the social practices of, of knowledge creation and the institutions that validate knowledge as, you know, better or worse, you know, applied research versus theoretical research, um, all the kinds of valuations that we place on different kinds of knowing. Um, so that's how I found out about evaluation, kind of. Um, and then when it was really when I was, uh, and I, I had, you know, to, to lead an NGO after coming straight out of academia is, is not is not a path I would recommend for anyone, <laughs> really, because I knew not the, the first thing about fundraising. Mm. I knew enough about it to know I didn't know enough. And so I got myself some training from the Foundation Center, which I cannot say enough good things about. But I entered this NGO sort of after the professionalization of the nonprofit field. And most nonprofits had had to face up to, we need to, you know, there, there, been, there were a few high profile uh, stories of nonprofits misusing resources. And it led to this huge crackdown on nonprofits and the need to demonstrate, um, you know, accountability to donors. I entered after that revolution had happened, but at, into an organization that had 
had the good fortune of have, having had sufficient funding to ignore all of that for the first 10 years or so that it was going on. And so I came in right at the moment where they could no longer ignore um, that, you know, they needed to demonstrate accountability to funders. And so I had to learn about it. And I also had to convince my board that it was something to pay attention to and, and that it could have value beyond just demonstrating accountability that, that, you know, that there was a value to, to learning about our effectiveness and learning how and when we were effective and how and when we weren't. So I had to become a sort of internal advocate for evaluation before I really completely understood what it was. But as a researcher, I, it kind of made some automatic sense to me. Yeah. And it sounds like based on the Medium post that we're going to start talking about that Perhaps your idea about indicators, particularly quantitative indicators, might have shifted and evolved since that initial, you know, internal, we need to advocate for evaluation type role. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's shifted a number of times. And I've, I've had the pleasure of um, uh, many years intellectual collaboration with a colleague, Meg Satterthwaite, who's at the, the NYU Law School. Uh, and he, so I'm never going to get the name right. It's a Center for Human Rights and Global Justice, I think is the title. Anyway, she, she directs that center and um, I believe that's her, still her role. She and I have now written a couple of pieces on that draw on some of the same history that I talk about in the, in the Medium posts to write about the history of human rights indicators and where they come from, how they evolved in the UN system and how the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has itself evolved in its use of indicators from something that I was very skeptical of to begin with, but that, be, you know, because they involved a bunch of really interesting interdisciplinary thinkers to, to do better with, with the concept of indicators. Yeah, I think I should just say, yes, my thinking on this topic has evolved quite a lot, and I expect it will continue to probably even through the course of this conversation. Oh, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. So going into this medium post, I want to start us off by um, sharing with our listeners who may or may not have read the medium post, the four maxims that you start the series with, because I think they really, I mean, they're the outline of your entire series, right? Mm -hmm. So the four maxims, the first one, it is important to speak truth to power. Neither truth nor power is singular, but some things are truer than others. And then the last one is to speak truth to power in credible, persuasive ways, we must cultivate trust. So I want to kind of start piecing, you know, taking this apart just a little bit. Start off with like, what does it mean to you to speak truth to power? And to maybe couch this just a little bit. This was the AEA conference theme for last year, right? 20... Uh, 2018. No, 2018. Yes. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Uh, I've been uh, at various points in my life more or less actively involved in anti-racism efforts um, in various kinds of uh, civil rights, human rights struggles and, and have identified quite a bit with those movements. So I think initially I just had the same, you know, that there's the, I almost have the raised fist comes to my mind, right? Speak truth to power. Um, and I, I think I was fortunate to have some really powerful academic mentors who would never allow a statement like that to stand as more than a bumper sticker, right? They, they, would, they would say, you know, well, what, what do you mean by truth? What do you mean by power? Um, and I also have had now leadership roles in my life in which I am a person who has some power in the world. It's small, it's very local. And I, you know, I was a graduate student uh, union member when I, when I was in graduate school and we went on strike and we were striking against the abusive teaching assistants, um, the, the exploitation, I should say, of, of teaching assistants. And I had feminist professors who I very much respected and continue to respect who saw themselves as really not having any power in their where they sat in the institution. And I can both understand the truth of that 
having now been a professor, but as a graduate student, it certainly didn't feel to me like they didn't have any power. And it felt a little disingenuous when they would position themselves as relatively powerless. So that complicated my idea of power. Um, and the idea of truth has been complicated for me since I was a very small child for reasons that the talk kind of goes into. Um, I had, um, yeah, I, truth was never a singular or very clear thing in my family life growing up. So lots of storytelling, not always firm connectedness to verifiable facts in the world. Um, so, you know, that, that has its pros and cons for sure. So my idea of truth has always been very complicated. <laughs> my idea of power definitely evolved um, as I sort of came up through academic institutions and then um, into nonprofit, you know, management and leadership. So how do you think of power currently? <sighs> um, I should have known you would ask me a question like that. Uh, <laughs> you just talked about how your yeah, professors would encourage yeah. you to operationalize these concepts. <laughs> they, yes, and, and lo and behold, here I am, put on the spot to do so. I, th I like the idea, I'm not going to remember the, the, the citation right now, but I like the idea of power as... Um, like thinking about it kind of literally as electricity, as something that flows and picks up strength when they're, when the paths are wider and like more people can, can join that path. It can be dangerous. It can, it can shock you, can kill you. Um, but it can also, you know, bring light and heat and cool um, temperature control to the world. It has just a manifold number of ways that it expresses itself. And it, it is itself relatively value neutral. It, it can be used for good, it can be used for ill. But power in and of itself doesn't have, is not good or bad um, by definition. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that metaphor before. And it makes it makes me think of how then we necessarily don't ever have power, but we're like mm -hmm. conduits of power, right? Exactly. Like yep. they're the vessels through which power goes through. Yeah, and it's not my metaphor. And I, I wish I could remember whose it is. And after after our podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and, and send you the citation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm embarrassed, but yeah. Yeah, and we'll add it to the show notes once we figure it out. <laughs> well, and also... It also just brings up the, the notion like it's it's very much environmentally contextually dependent, yes. right? Yes. Like yep. like it's not a person dependent, it's contextually dependent. And it's yep. the person in context in in interaction. Yep, exactly. That's cool. Yeah. And I you know, I cite Hannah Arendt whose work I just worship uh, in the talk as a or the blog post. Uh, started as a talk now blog post who talks about power as something that requires uh, requires people to believe in it, to, to support it, um, that you can't, she, she's, she writes against C. Wright Mills's notion that um, violence is the purest form of power, um, that and she says, no, violence is an entirely different thing. Power is, is something people have to, grant to those who have it otherwise it's 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 not power it's force interesting so part of the power and truth thing we start bringing in this idea of objectivity <laughs> right that and this is this is something that objectivity as a concept has been really forefront on my mind lately um objectivity and bias and you know we uh -huh. can pick apart the the two different definitions because they're not necessarily the same but and sorry to ask you all these definitional questions, but I think it helps right. out how we're like, how we're talking about these concepts, but how would you define objectivity? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think it has a single definition. Um, there's a great book that I do remember the citation for, uh, which is called Rethinking Objectivity. And it's edited by Alan McGill. And his introduction lays out four different types of objectivity. And I'm 
kind of struggle to remember what they all are. Um, one, though, that I think is important for this conversation is disciplinary objectivity. Um, that is, within a particular discipline, there are conventions for recognizing what is valid and what is not, what is truthful and what is not. And for evaluation in the United States, because it is arises out of social science as well as governance, um, it, in, it brings with it all of the same uh, sort of valorization of quantification as a, of, uh, as, as a more objective way to establish truth than storytelling, for instance. That is, that is, that goes back to John Dewey in the United States, like the, the history of social science in the United States is highly quantitative. That is not the case in other English speaking democracies like Australia, um, the UK, and in, in some other countries. And, and I, I don't speak other languages well enough to know ab about other concepts of objectivity, but I'm sure they are, they, there are many, many of them. But it situates, McGill by, in this introduction, situates the concept of objectivity within different kinds of contexts and disciplinary objectivity is, can have t take different forms. So legal objectivity is, it has a certain character. Uh, quantitative science objectivity has another kind. Medical science has yet another kind. And there are different rules that tell us what's more objective or less objective. And then there's this, the kind of objectivity that I'm mostly talking about in the talk is the one that gets used kind of colloquially to often to mean, um, my advisor Donna Haraway would say, uh, a God trick, a view from nowhere, an idea of the world as it is without a perceiver. Mm. And I, I'm curious to know what's got, had it on your mind most recently. Um, it does seem that the Black Lives Matter movement and other anti-oppression movements in the United States have, have well and truly problematized that concept of objectivity. So I don't think anyone's really holding on to it anymore. I don't think we have a really easy vocabulary yet for talking about alternatives. Um, right. So I'm curious to know what what's what's brought it to your mind so much recently. Why why is bias and why are bias and objectivity on your mind? Yeah, I well one we've had some really great issues in evaluation on values and evaluation, right? And, and the importance and the inherent core of evaluation is in values, and yet yeah. we evaluation stems from this social science perspective that at its core seems to want to say, and I do not think they have a good enough argument to say that they're value neutral, right? They are, right. they lack values and therefore, therefore they are objective, right? right. And right. I think it does still tie in that definition of, you know, uh, uh, that it comes from nowhere. It, it just is, right? That right. the truth just exists and we do our best, you know, to approximate it and come up with it and, and, embody it and uh -huh. uh, i'm just i'm i've rejected that notion right and so like <laughs> it's constantly in my mind when i'm just seeing everything about how research tries to say it's objective and oh we're, we have this objective measure i'm like just because it's behavioral doesn't mean it's objective right yeah. like you yeah. make so many you know you make so many decisions based on values based on priorities based on a lot of other things that decide you know that this behavior is worthwhile of you know measuring and this is how we're going to measure it and so on and so forth and uh -huh. yeah so that's how it's on my mind currently yep that's that's certainly as i say i i, I do feel like and maybe it's just my little corner of the evaluation world that that the concept of objectivity and the the belief that values pervade everything that we do, whether we're conscious of them or not, um, that feels like it's been well and truly accepted. And I still get into find myself in conversations with clients or colleagues where they'll say things like, "Well, I mean, you know, multiple perspectives and all is great, but we really want something rigorous." Um, so 
it shows up in almost words that I don't even think people are necessarily, like, I think if you, if I were to ask folks who are saying that, do you mean having no perspective? Do you mean a view from nowhere objectivity? I'm pretty sure they would say no, that's, of course, that's not what they mean. But we have a lot of unconscious associations between quantification and valued neutrality. And that's partly why I want to, to write this talk in the first place was that I felt like the critique of, uh, how do I want to put this? The critique of neutrality, sometimes it gets flipped. If, if we say that, okay, there, uh, there is an extremely well-documented, completely horrifying entanglement of social sciences and imperialism, social science, you know, anthropology and imperialism, um, sociology and the construction of a concept like the ghetto, um, the ways that social science has been entangled with structures of institutional power that have been terrible and life-threatening for people, many, many, many people and groups of people. Once you sort of accept that, sometimes the tendency is to say, okay, well then only people who have not experienced oppression can really tell the truth. And again, truth is singular. And there's a, there's a great scholar of legal studies who, whose work I love uh, named Mariana Valverde. And she, she says that she points out as, and I do as my, in my talk and Donna Haraway did before me, there's nothing original about this. Um, there, there is all kinds of evidence for the conviction that if you are somebody who has, who's, who has not had independent agency over what happens in your life, who is, you know, for lack of a less charged word, oppressed, you have a, a more accurate vision of the world because you, you by, by definition, you have to see things from someone else's perspective who has more power than you, as well as whatever perspective you bring into the world. So there's just evidentiary value for privileging, um, particularly now in this historical moment as a corrective, ways of knowing that are not, uh, that don't come out of these histories of social science that are so toxic. But what Mariana says, I'll see if I can get this right. She, she said, it, it, it's, that's not a philosophical take on what is true or who has access to truth. It's an ethical and, um, see if I can remember the other word. She's, she said, it's a, a pragmatic ethical choice mm. to, to privilege voices that have been excluded um, in defining what counts as valid knowledge that was a really really long rant i'm not even sure where oh, we started I'm so so loving this so much <laughs> um, i also think about how i mean with the black lives matter and with more and more people working on you know anti-racism and understanding the privileges they may have understanding like what it means like what white culture means and how objectivity is one of the roots of, uh, you know, white colonialist culture uh -huh. um, and how it's, you know, this dichotomous thinking that it's binary, that it's either good or bad. There is no gray. There's no gradient. And where I was going with this, but just <laughs> it, it's making me, I mean, everything back up just a little bit, right? Thinking about what our values are, and I, I'll say my values, as a white person's values, right, that um, I hadn't thought much about it. And then I realized now that like a lot of that was because I was just adopting the values that culture provided me. Mm -hmm. And culture's values are based on the dominant society's cultures and therefore culture, like society's values, at least my society in the United States and so on, is rooted in white colonialism. Mm -hmm. And therefore I've just adopted objectivity as a value and partly, I think, from my academic training and so on, without really consciously thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is objectivity and why do we value it? And once I start going down that rabbit hole, I realized 
you know, everything you're saying, right? That, that objectivity is, I mean, it's problematic for a variety of reasons that we can have other values at the forefront of the work that we're doing and should, I think. Yes. Yes. And I, I, one of the things I think that you put your finger on that I, I also try to talk about in the talk, and I should say, I'm also, I'm white American. I was going to try and qualify that any further, but for the purposes of this conversation, that's all that really matters. Um, The way that, the way in which white culture has appeared to white people to be not a thing, to be invisible, that we are just, this is just the way the world is. That's one of the things I was trying to, have a story in the talk that I, where I talk about a friend of mine who is manifesting it in, in his case as kind of white male, cisgender, hetero, whatever, uh, economically privileged perspective of just not realizing you have a perspective. And I think when you are, when the power of self-definition is not yours from birth, you, you never have the luxury and I, or, or, I almost want to say, or, or the cancerous condition of thinking that you don't have a perspective um, or that, that there's a transparent, you know, pane of glass between you and the world and everything you see is just as it is. And there is no, not even an angle of vision. There's no, there's no perceiving involved. It's just, it is. And that invisibility is this invisibility that objectivity um, aspires to or view from nowhere objectivity aspires to is facilitated by numbers which themselves can appear to be acontextual. So I think if there's one thing I would want people to get from this conversation or the talk or the blog post or whatever is that the importance of not necessarily goodness of but the utterly impossible to get away from and therefore we might as well value it because we can't do without it is human judgment and human judgment is involved in figuring out what numbers matter how numbers are constructed what questions get asked to produce numbers things like that Um, and so really foregrounding that we all have judgment that judgment is a product of an accretion of experiences and our situatedness in whatever systems we're in and are a product of. But there's no getting away from human judgment. Well, and all of this is reminding me, I just finished reading Decolonizing Wealth by mm-hmm. uh, Edgar Villanueva, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Villanueva. Um, and just when I got to the seven steps that he provides at the end of how we decolonize wealth, I just kept thinking like, Perhaps maybe not the investment necessarily for basically like if we were to just grandiose, you know, make this even bigger beyond just like philanthropy and wealth in general. But like the steps of like listening and relating to people, mm-hmm. you know, like it's I think it's it, it feels to me like this is part of the root of what we need to do. Those of us in privileged positions to really start doing the work and perhaps getting to the point of speaking truth to power, right? We need to be able to listen and relate to the people whom we don't have that necessarily shared experience. Uh, and as you're saying, if we're, you know, born in that privileged position, we are, we only have that one perspective. We don't have to put ourselves in the shoes of others because ours is quote unquote, the way, right? It is uh-huh. how society functions and we don't have to think about any other possible ways, but it requires us to start listening and then relating to other people. Yeah, and, and I would argue that that's a f- fundamental skill of good research. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't, you can, you don't even have to put it in the context of, of, of histories of oppression, though one should, um, because good research pays attention to to evidence, to things that can be seen and touched and felt and remembered. And, uh, and all of those things are different kinds of knowledge, right? Memory is utterly constructed. We know that now because of great neuroscience research. It's why multiple forms of knowledge and evidence are really important to 
and why to quote Valverde again, who, whose work I love so much. Um, she says it, it, it's really important to say that, uh, hey, there's people lie. There's all kinds of lying happening in the world. The opposite of lie, of, of a lie is not capital T truth, but truths, plural. And so I think, I think that's what, if there's a value to be had there, it is a value of, that, that we should, we should, that, that I, I hold and would argue others should hold as well. Um, it's to recognize the multiplicity of perspectives that humans and other creatures bring to um, any given encounter. Right. And so all of this listening relating, as you say, I think, I, and I completely agree, it should be at the forefront of our training, evaluation, research, whatever we're doing. And yet I don't think it is, right? I, I think, unfortunately, um, it is, I mean, put under the label of soft skills as if they're not in, as important or as if they're not teachable or mm -hmm. as if we should just, um, or as if they, they just, either you have it or you don't, or they just kind of magically appear right? As opposed to be um, intentionally cultivated. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I that's another rabbit hole I could go down. Um, but your <laughs> medium posts start bringing in this idea of how we need to cultivate trust. And I think all of this relates, right? Mm -hmm. And trust is, uh, I mean, there's multiple definitions of what trust is. I mean, you could go into the trust literature and they've got a bunch. But I, I think all of this, this listening relating, you know, it, it, is part of trust building, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's a part of relationship building. It's, you know, cultivating love for the other people. And I really appreciated like at the very end of your third part of the piece of the, of the, of the series, um, bringing in the idea of love and, uh, just a little story. I, um, my first evaluation I ever worked on, it was this wonderful organization, uh, this college access program who was just doing incredible things. So we were doing a, um, uh, an ethnographic study, very, very in-depth, a lot of interviews and focus groups and observations and document analysis and really getting our hands dirty in, um, dirty is not the right word, but right, we're, we're getting deep with the organization. And when we, the whole point of what we were doing was to come up with a, a logic model for what they were doing in a way that we could share with other similar programs as like, because this program was doing amazing things. So how could we share lessons learned to other programs in a way that would work in their context? And one of them, and I remember having at first a really problematic, you know, having a problem with this term was love, right? We wanted mm -hmm. to call it loving support. And I remember having this kind of visceral reaction at first and like at the time I'm like first year grad student fresh out of undergrad I am very naive and new to research itself I, so like I, you know I'm just I'm young you know I, I was very young at the time uh, I'm still young but I, I was very young <laughs> at the time um, both in age and in in, <laughs> in thought um, but I, I just remember thinking like love doesn't belong, belong here and oh my <sighs> gosh has my perspective on that change that love does belong that it is at like if we're not approaching our work from a place of loving kindness to ourselves mm -hmm. and the people we're working with like then what the heck are we doing so what do you think was it a, a gradual evolution from aversion to the the place of love in research to thinking about it differently or were were there key turning points, key experiences that changed your position on this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I am not sure. I would think it's just kind of this slow evolution as I went from um, basically from research to evaluation, right? As soon as I mm. came into grad school, I came into grad school to do research. Um, mm -hmm. We had this co-concentration in evaluation. I had no idea what the heck that meant. Um, mm -hmm. And day one, when I learned what evaluation was, I was like, oh, that, that puts a name to everything I'd wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But then as I started getting steeped in the evaluation literature, as opposed to the research letter in literature in psychology, just the way that the evaluation literature, and, and I will say research is slowly kind of getting to this as well. I'm seeing pockets of it, and some fields have done this a lot better than others, um, particularly, I, I would say, outside of psychology. But of our work being... Com like human-centered right uh, mm -hmm. and this 
you know, participatory approach kind of being at the center of what most evaluators do, especially now, I think. Um, okay. And when it's humans centered, you know, stakeholder participants centered, and what we're doing is for them, not for the purposes of a generalizable knowledge base, mm-hmm. then it really changes how we think about the work we're doing. And I, I think I just need that gradual shift of like understanding like this naive sense of what research was. And I, st- I think it kind of got reinforced, quite frankly, to then switching to evaluation, where in my mind, it's just much more from that place of love um, and care and support, as opposed to, so for instance, my dissertation looked at research practice partnerships. And mm. the way I conceptualize those and see them being conceptualized in the literature, I'm like, well, that's like what evaluators do except the difference being that in my perspective, evaluators come in with the idea of I'm going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be a little bit saviorism, right? But, but I'm a here little, to do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm here to do what you need, right? Like I'm here to support you in your endeavors and whatever, at least that's my conceptualization of what evaluation perhaps should be and how I uh-huh. approach it. Uh-huh. Whereas research practice partnerships come to it as, we're going to help each other. I'm going to help uh-huh, you with yes. what you need, but you are going to give me something and it's going to be research data and stuff that I can publish. Whereas uh-huh. I just don't feel like evaluators come in with that tit for tat mentality. Well, um, I might, I might push back on that a little bit. Um, I, I don't, I don't know anybody who would want to see themselves as doing that, but look, the jobs in my in informing change the company I work with come about in exchange for dollars, typically from philanthropy, and f- different philanthropists have different different and staffs of philanthropy have different takes on on what they want from evaluation, what they want whether they want evaluation to to demonstrate accountability, um, to say you've used our resources in the way that you said you would or they want it to prove that they've made a good big bet. They, they want to see big things happen. There's, there are motives behind all of this research. And I, I really liked, um, uh, I don't remember her first name, but uh, a woman whose last name is Deluzio wrote a, an AEA 365 post a few weeks ago on months ago now, who knows what time, <laughs> uh, on participatory evaluation. And she does, she does a very nice job of sort of laying out a spectrum of evaluation for evaluation with evaluation. I can't remember what the spectrum was, but it was like sort of a, it was like a spectrum of participatory methods to participatory evaluation. And I think, like, I know everyone at uh, at informing change, we we would love it if we could be doing lots and lots of participatory evaluation, where it where communities come to us and ask for support in learning how to do certain particular research skills in the service of questions they have for goals that they have for you know and and that it be community driven. We would all love that, but the world is not set up right now in, in, in my capacity currently to imagine where communities themselves can mobilize the resources necessary to hire expertise. There's an exchange value. Like we have, you know, and, and I don't think that's, I'm, I don't think that's necessarily, it's a little bit like power, right? Exchanges it's self-neutral. It's the power relations in which it's located that make it tricky. But I, I, w- I want to I make money so I can pay my rent and feed my dog and support my family. And I want all of the folks who work in our company to have health insurance and retirement plans and all of the things that make it possible to have more choices in one's life about the kind of life one can live. And it is still the case that most of the work that we do, that we can get paid to do, allows some participatory methods 
but are not fundamentally participatory or community driven. That is the state of the field as I see it now. I would love to see it move more toward increasing levels of participation and community driven work. But we're lucky if we can get stakeholders involved in asking questions themselves instead of just being the folks from whom answers are extracted in right. in service of somebody else's questions. Right. So and I think I think a yeah. lot of it stems from the funding structures for evaluation yep. as well, right? Where Absolutely. it's often not the program or organization themselves that are funding it. It is their funder that is mandating it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the pleasure of not working with as many clients like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps this is where my uh, my perspective of, of at least how I think evaluation should be, right, um, yeah. stems from. Because um, I haven't had to work through a funder like that. It's always been the organization itself is largely directing what they want from the evaluation. And so, yeah, it has been. But I do recognize that that is one type of evaluation work and a lot more people I think are working within um, a, a funding structure that has funding mandates of what the evaluation should report back to the funder. Well, but even if it doesn't, right, even if it even if it's not the sort of, I mean, we don't typically work with funders who, who are running around mandating. They, 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 what they're saying is we, we want to see some evidence that you guys are interested in learning about what you're doing, what about what you're doing is working and what about what you're doing is not. And we want this to be in service of learning. And we don't typically take projects that are purely accountability driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I'm, I certainly am not served by painting philanthropy as um, the mandators of, of, purely accountability driven evaluation i'm sure there are some out there but i don't typically work with them so but you've got to know too how hard it is for people who's who are utterly reliant for their funding on foundations or government programs the pressure to demonstrate what you think they want to hear to keep your funding going is enormous and it is one of the hardest power dynamics to get around and to do, to do really meaningful research that people can trust and have so that, so that the, not just the funder thinks it's reliable, but the people who are involved in generating the, the research findings and making meaning of those findings, that they find it reliable as well and truthful, um, Mm -hmm. even if not a singularly, a single truth, the pressures against that because of the way the social sector is funded are so, so powerful that, yeah, I, it's, it's one of the reasons integrity is one of our company's values is that we don't ever want to be in a situation and we don't, we, you know, our clients don't ask of us to spin research or, you know, Mm -hmm things like that. But, you know, we do want to help our clients communicate research that tells their story. And the line between communications for promotion and communication for sharing of research gets really fuzzy sometimes. And, um, and when we really, as we always do, care about our clients and want to see their work succeed, you know, there's nothing harder than having to come back and say, you know what, the data is just not there. You know, what you're expecting to see and what it, what your, even your gut is telling you is right. We can't, we can't find evidence to, to back that up. It is really important to us always to, to start an engagement knowing that everybody knows that could be the outcome and at least intellectually is prepared to accept that, but it is never easy to 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 be unable to find evidence in the world of something someone believes very strongly right it's like trying to find evidence of of faith if by definition they're like in two different epistemological universes faith doesn't require evidence if it required evidence it wouldn't be faith right but sometimes there there is there are some projects that are they are 
they're driven by a faith and a strong belief that doing X is going to have the effect I want it to have and that effect is good. And all kinds of things can get in the way of that. <laughs> right, right. So part of all of this, part, part of this work, right, is this cultivating trust piece that you end mm -hmm. your medium post with. And, you know, thinking about even our social science research, this trust building is also very critical. But what does it look like in practice for you to cultivate trust with, your, with the people you're working with? Um, if anybody who I've ever talked to listens to this, they're going to have to just turn off their sound device because I, they're going to be tired of hearing it. Um, I, I like to start engagements by talking about how important it is to tell one another uncomfortable things. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't help a consulting engagement go well if someone feels like they can't hurt the evaluator's feelings um, or they don't want to disrespect the evaluator or they, you know, whatever. They're not, they're not happy with our services. If they can't tell us that, nobody's served by that. And same goes in reverse. They're not going to be served if we can't tell them, you know, this is a purely hypothetical, this has just not happened in my experience, but we're feeling pressure from you to say things that aren't true, that, that, are, that we can't find in our evidence, we can't document. So starting an engagement by saying we need to be able to tell each other uncomfortable things is an important first step that doesn't make it, just because you want it to be that way, doesn't make it true. Um, and I, I, was, uh, I was influenced several years ago by someone, and I'm, I'm completely citation free here, which is very uncomfortable for me as a former academic. Um, but somebody told me about some research on trust that countered sort of um, commonplace statements about trust that you need to trust to do things or that, you know, you need to, um, or that uh, rather it's, you need to build trust and that trust grows over time. Um, you start from kind of no trust and you build trust and the research is much more complicated and it shows in fact the opposite, particularly if, you know, if, if it's like me and you, we're both white ladies, the, we're going to start with a very high level of trust because we're making all kinds of assumptions about one another that might be true, might not be true, but only in the, only in working together do you discover the uniqueness is uniqueness that is the other party right the other the other people who are involved and and there's often a significant drop off in trust as you recognize that your assumptions were mistaken and now all of a sudden you're questioning everything that you thought about the project when you started the person when you started and it's in the naming of those disappointed assumptions that I think trust is built as long as that naming goes okay. I mean, if it if it's finger pointing and blaming, then it, that's not going to help trust thrive. Um, but I've also been really influenced, and this is like one of those ways that I'm still changing my mind all the time. Um, uh, the, the literature on scenario planning talks about um, for instance, peace and reconciliation processes, truth and reconciliation processes in South Africa and other post-conflict settings where starting with trust or requiring trust in order to move forward is just a non-starter. You can't, you're not going to trust the people who have, you know, killed your family members. Like that's, <laughs> asking for that is absurd. And they, I've read some pretty persuasive arguments for, finding that, that, that there are processes you can help people work through even in the absence of trust. So though I end my talk and these blog posts on this Pollyanna idea about the importance of trust, I'm, I, I'm coming to recognize that particularly for really, really hard social justice work, trust can't be a precondition. It has to be built, and if you're lucky, you get a little of it um, through the process. But yeah, because that's, that's your fourth maxim, right? That we, yep. in order to do this, we must cultivate trust. I still believe we must cultivate it. True. I no longer believe... That we start with it. That we start with it or have to start with it. True. Um, okay. um, 
so yeah in fact when i was rereading my talk in preparation for this podcast i i ran that whole thing through in my head and i was like do i still believe that <laughs> um and in fact because of the way it's written i do still believe it um, which i do but, appreciate that that uh, openness about like do i believe what i wrote i actually don't remember when you wrote these um well i guess it was t- past- a couple years ago yeah just a couple years ago um I wonder how many people be willing to uh, rethink something they wrote a couple years ago. Do I still agree with that or like have to <laughs> no, I, you know, dig their heels in? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really funny. My um, co-director, Michael Arnold this morning, uh, we have the way that we're sort of maintaining company culture is we have everybody in the company takes turns asking a question of the day. And then those of us who have the wherewithal will answer it um, on, on base camp. And so we have kind of running conversations with each other in his, um, I guess he wasn't the questioner of the day, but he, his quote for the day was, was in fact, um, if you'll indulge me, I will find it because it is right spot on in this topic. He quoted Grace Jones um, and he had a really fabulous photograph of her uh, and from a, from a title called I'll Never Write My Memoirs. And the quote is, if you are a fan of doing the unexpected and I am, then it is an advantage to be highly skilled at changing your mind. If you do not want to limit yourself, then be prepared to change your mind often. Oh, I love that. I, yeah, it was fantastic. So it's not uncommon that Michael has come up with a quote or something that exactly, I'm using a lot of hand gestures that no one can see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to come up uh, with the same. That enca- yeah, that, enca- that encapsulates or crystallizes, that's what I mean. That sort of crystallizes something that, um, that I'm also thinking about around the same time. So I want to end um, with a question that, um, so I put, I put out uh, on a call on Twitter for people to ask um, questions of you after they read your article. And a number of people said they read it and were just like, uh, like mind blown, like, oh yeah, I'm totally agreeing with this. This is amazing. Um, but I did get one question from Kevin Kogel. So your principles that you described in part three, the expression of credible truth, cultivation of trust, how do you think those can be fostered in an environment like Twitter? So obviously I put this (laughs) out on Twitter, so I think that's why I was out. I don't know. I don't think you are on Twitter, Um, but maybe we could just kind of think social media. I am, but not not the way real Twitter users are. (laughs) I am in in the way that, um, you know, I don't know, someone taught me once that I should use it for professional purposes and that's what I kind of try. Um, but go back to your question, sorry. Yeah, so how do you think like this expression of credible truth, cultivation of trust might be fostered in an environment like Twitter? And like I said, we could broaden it out to social media in general, um, yeah. online, brief, virtual, often polarized exchanges. Yep, yep. I, I actually heard a podcast on, and I can't remember which one it was, unfortunately, it might have been the Times Daily talking about, yeah, I think it was the Times Daily talking about this exact question. I'm, and I think one of the, the person that the, the, get, the interviewer was talking with as their expert had a, a much more nuanced reply than I'm going to be able to give because they were somebody who really does live in the world of Twitter and mastered that, has that, that sort of lingua franca. I don't, I started this talk with four maxims because people in my, in the teams that I work on and work with convince me that from a communications perspective, I needed to do that. I am absolutely allergic to bumper sticker like statements or short little bursts. And yet I, I use them. I find them helpful. I believe the research that shows what gets communicated effectively. And sometimes it's short things like that. Um, Because I'm so enamored and probably too enamored sometimes by the idea that there can be multiple incompatible truths and they don't render each other invalid just because they're not the same. That, that kind of complexity is just really hard for me, you know, in my early fifties to uh, as a non-digital native to know how to even begin to communicate via social media, in particular Twitter, with its character limits. So people are clearly violating the character limits all over the place um, with their, you know, long tweet. We have threads things. now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But what I think, what what I think, social media does um, very much the same way graduate school did to me <laughs> is it privileges 
statements over questions. And, you know, I'm still really bad. I find myself making a lot of pronouncements as though I am speaking capital T truth because I was very well trained to speak in assertions rather than to ask questions and to continually ask questions. It, it's a really hard to break habit um, when you get rewarded for it decade upon decade. And I think that social media is, is just a much worse version of the same thing. You can ask questions on Twitter and sometimes people give thoughtful replies. I have seen it happen, so I know it's possible. Look, you put out a call for questions and you got one. Um, <laughs> and it's a really interesting question. But it, it's, I, I confess it, it may be especially a generational handicap that I have a really hard time um, thinking of most social media platforms as places that can can bring to life the kind of complexity that I find particularly exciting and meaningful and engaging. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think there is a lot of um, shouting at each other as opposed to talking mm -hmm. with each other on Twitter. I think the evaluation community, I feel uh, a large portion of the evaluation community does a really good job of engaging with one another as opposed to just sharing with each other. But I do, I do recognize all of that. <laughs> Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it, it's, it's certainly not a community or a profession without its, you know, dark sides or histories. But, but yeah, I can say that I, I could seldom tolerate more than one uh, academic conference panel a, a day, but I can go to many on end uh, at the evaluation conferences because there's, there's more actual communicating happening. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah, or at least efforts. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how it turns out this year with the online. Yeah. Content. It's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in wrapping up, I always like to ask the question, and I got this from NPR's Code Switch. Um, I don't know if you listen to that podcast. I do. And that's, thank you for saying that, because I really recognized the question, but I couldn't remember yes. where I'd heard it before. Yeah, yes, I, I love just love, They end it with, like, what song is giving you life right now. Uh -huh. um, but yeah. I was just like, well, what in evaluation is giving you life right now? Yeah, I, I love the question. And I, I would say partly partly lots of people are more interested in having conversations like this one. Um, and that, that is, that gives me some hope, but what really gives me life is actually how many times I get to be in the extremely privileged position of helping people to figure out ways to learn from data together and have shared data. Um, so collecting their own data, sharing it with one another. And I've seen so many examples of situations where there might be actually an initiative that's designed to build community or strengthen a sense of positive identity um, for young people, for some sub-community or other. And the, all of the formal activities that are supposed to have that effect they, they, they're more or less successful. They're, there's not a hard and fast rule about that. But collecting data on whether or not it's successful often brings people together, often creates a sense of shared identity, shared purpose, strengthened mission. And so the, I, it gives me no end of joy that research can be used as a vehicle itself for doing the things that an initiative set out to do in the first place. So that the so evaluation can be part of the change it's trying to evaluate, can be part of making it in a positive way. Um, and I, I see examples of that every day and it's really exciting. Yeah, I love that. So if anybody wants to get in contact with you, how could they best get in contact? Teleportation is the first thing that came to mind, but that, that, <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually know how to do that. Um, just go to informingchange.com and look for you know the about us team page and my my name is somewhere near the top of the list <laughs> and uh they could just email me there's a contact it says contact Anjanette, which is that's my my grown-up name i go by angie um in more familiar settings but um yeah i'm 
I'm on our site and uh, it's, it's a relatively new website that we're super excited about. So I encourage anybody to go check it out. It's informingchange.com. It's a wonderful website. I, I've been perusing it every once in a while to, as I refresh and get ready for this podcast. And it is a very good website. I really enjoy how it's put together. Um, a lot of credit goes to um, our communications manager, Natalie Blackmer, who has since moved on to bigger and better adventures. Uh, so we're very grateful for her leaving us this gift in her wake. Um, but of course, the folks who actually built the website get a lot of credit as well. And because Natalie led this process, I'm not going to be able to remember their name right now, but they, I'm sure they're quoted, they get credited somewhere on the site. So um, yeah, they did a great job. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Angie. I had a wonderful time talking about all these things. I love getting like nerdy on topics and I feel like we got real nerdy today and I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Dana. I like that as well. And um, thank you again for, for inviting me to, to join you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland. Land.